Hi, this is Ron Gilbert, and welcome to the weekly Thimbleweed Park stand-up meeting podcast. Every week we go through what we did last week and what we're going to do next week. But since today is the first day of the month, we have Friday questions from people. And I am joined by David Fox, Dark Chocolate. You're supposed to say, hi, Dark Chocolate. Yeah. Hi, this is David Fox, Dark Chocolate. And Gary Winnick, Dark Chocolate. Dark Chocolate. All right, so let's get on to the questions. The first question is from Benjamin Larson. Were any of you involved in the Eidolon, and do you know who designed the totally awesome cover art for the game? Uh, yes, uh, this is Gary, and yes, I was involved in the Eidolon. I did the animation and a lot of the art, though it was done generating fractals uh, the same way that uh, Rescue was. We just flipped them upside down, and Charlie Kellner did that. I also did the um, control panel and a bunch of the other art for that game. I don't know if David worked on that at all. David, did you work on the Eidolon at all? Nope. Okay, so just I'm the only surviving member in this group that worked on the Eidolon. And then uh, the cover art for the game was actually done by Ken Macklin. It was the first piece of cover art that he did for Lucasfilm. And he was a friend of mine at the time. And we were trying to figure out what to have him do. And the Eidolon came up and it seemed right up his alley. And I think he did a fabulous job on that. And the next question is from Loftcraft. Will the stars blink? Uh, They will twinkle. They will elegantly twinkle in Mark Ferrari's uh, sky. But yeah, we intend to have them a- ambiently animating. Yeah, we just had a had a big discussion about the twinkling stars yesterday. So I think I think David's going to put some of those in today or something. Yeah, Ron just made a, a big change to the engine so we can now add animation to the parallax layers. And that was probably the main reason we couldn't do anything with them before. But now, even from the layers that are in the foreground and the background, we can have animation attached. So we've been going through the game and doing that. Uh, Red Phantom asks, did you guys ever end up using Spine for the character animations? Uh, The answer to that would be no. But my understanding was originally when Ron and I discussed this, that we were considering using Spine to do the cutscenes. And uh, I think Ron may have actually done a test with Spine, didn't you, Ron? Yeah, I did a test. And... I think given that we were doing the 8-bit pixel animation stuff, I just I just felt that the spine didn't have the right feel for everything, so we just decided not to use it. On top of that, we've pretty well now stat, you know, just decided to kind of hand draw all the special case stuff, and I think that kind of goes for the cutscenes as well, and I think that works better than uh, something like spine would have. So uh, reasonably happy with it, and... Um, Maybe, you know, in the future, if we do something a little less uh, retro 2D, but right now, I think it looks good. The next question is from Matthias Cedarval. Can you give me any details about how Ransom Swear Jar will work in the game? Yeah, that's an interesting question, because I think the Ransom Swear Jar has proven to be a lot more popular than we thought it was. There's a lot of people have kind of backed at that level. And and we, you know, our original idea was just kind of have a list of names for the different swear levels. But I think there's so many names that we need to come up with something new, something a little more interesting uh, for that. And it would also be nice to do something where the swear jar was more involved in a puzzle and you know maybe even uh, someone's name was involved in the puzzle kind of like we did with the phone book and i think what we're probably going to do is we'll do a blog post next week and we'll probably maybe just ask readers for ideas you know some kind of a clever solution to that that can make ransom swear jar you know really really interesting um, because it's kind of a neat thing 
Yeah, and and at the rate that Ransom swears, I can only see more and more people's names <laughs> being added to this. So I anticipate it being a you know much more complicated thing than we originally expected. Yeah, the rate he swears, you know, that swear jar could save the economy of a small country. <laughs> Have you done a beep count in the game yet? No, I didn't. That's a good idea. That's an easy thing to grab for. You mean like, you know, you compare that we have like a 300 beep game to your average 150 beep game or something like that? Well, I think virtually every sentence that he speaks has a swear word in it. So, I mean, there's definitely a lot of a lot of beeping. A 335 so far. Oh. <laughs> David actually like counted that in the time that Ron and I had, had said this. Next question is from Andreas. If Gary was a ghost, would that make finishing the game harder? Uh, I would hope so. Otherwise, uh, Ron has no reason to keep me around. So, uh, Well, maybe it's easier. Maybe if you're a ghost, you don't need sleep and you could work 24 hours a day. Well, if you were a ghost, you'd have like a direct interface to the. You you wouldn't need the mouse or the keys. You just go electronically and then just do all the art, right? Oh, just kind of like push your face into the computer and and just start controlling the circuits directly. Getting your ghost physics information from like ghost hunters on like (laughs) channel or something like that. I'm like, you know, maybe I can make like a little bit of static happen and like moan or something. But I don't know if I could actually do computer art if I was. Uh, well, a ghost. I've been talking to Franklin. Yeah, everything would be covered with ectoplasm. <laughs> Next question is from Bon Ansa. What should we call you as a company creating games? Is it Terrible Toy Box? Uh, yeah, Terrible Toy Box is the name of the company that uh, Gary and I started that is actually making the game. So uh, if you wish to refer to that, you are certainly welcome to. Or you can just say the Thimbleweed Park team or Dark Chocolate or whatever you want. Next question is from Polyp. Does it feel different making a game you completely own and control to making the game for someone else? And do you approach it differently because you fully own it? Uh, you know, I don't I don't think that that's necessarily true. Um, you know, the stuff at Lucasfilm, you know, we didn't obviously, unfortunately, didn't own any of that stuff. But I think we had a lot of control over it. Um, you know, we really had the ability to make almost anything we wanted. And, you know, even games that I've made, like The Cave, where, you know, Sega was actually the producer of it. And technically, you know, they did have some control over it. I don't know that I approached it differently. You know, there were just, you know, instances where, you know, with Sega, you know, we just had to talk to them a little bit more about what we were doing, as opposed to now, where we just kind of do what we want. I think, I think for me personally, there isn't really much difference. I think that relative to, say, something like Maniac Mansion versus other things that I've done, this feels a lot like when we did Maniac Mansion because I think Ron has many times said when we, when Ron and I did Maniac Mansion together, we basically had no adult supervision and we were basically able to get around with away with everything. I think Ron has talked about how he was amazed that we like kept our jobs during that. So um, I don't feel a whole lot differently about this particular process versus doing Maniac Mansion. I do feel differently about it relative to other things I've worked on, but since it's the first time Ron and I have worked again together this in this capacity since Maniac Mansion, I kind of feel it's a very similar um, experience for me. I, I want to say, I, yeah, Lucas, at least, I felt ownership for everything I worked on. And even though I didn't actually own it, you know, creatively I did um, in some way or another. And it was just... You know, felt full dedication to make it the best we could we could possibly do it. So for me, for me, I don't know this one, but for me, it's it's no different. You just put everything you have into it. All right. Next question is from Carlo Valente. 
I just listened to the future podcast answering these questions, and I was puzzled because you will say the words dark chocolate without any apparent reason. Will my question modify the current timeline, thus preventing you from saying such words and giving demonstration to everybody that I am actually a time traveler and have the ability to alter the past and impact the future? The answer to that would be no, because we said dark chocolate. Pro- proving that you are not a you are not a time yeah, traveler. Proving you are not a time traveler. Although you were right, I have, I have no idea why we said dark chocolate. Well, the reason we said it was because of this question. <laughs> if it wasn't for this question, then if we had said it, it would have been true, and then he could have like gone back into the past and given himself the power to do this. But unfortunately. Ron could go through this and edit out all the dark talk. So much <laughs> no, well, maybe maybe I'll beep them out. I'll just maybe beep them I'm all Captain out. Maybe if Captain Kirk, I can say everything I say is a lie and it like will make the computer explode. <laughs> all right, on to the next question. Dark chocolate. All right, a sake fault null pointer. For puzzles which need to be solved by a specific character, how do you help the player who tries the action unsuccessfully with the wrong character understand that the action is sound but just not with this character? Yeah, I think that's just how you deal with the failure case. You know, if, if somebody tries to do something, you know, like, you know, fix a radio and they don't have that ability, they they say that, that they, you know, don't have the skill to do this, or I wish I knew how to fix radios, or maybe somebody else knows how to fix radios. You just hint people along with, with how you deal with the failure responses. You know, if, if your failure response is just, that doesn't seem to work, then I think that's very misleading. But you just kind of customize the response a little bit to focus players in the right direction. Next question is from Yuli Customer. I love adventure games that are non-linear in their storytelling because when I get stuck, I can just try to solve one of the other riddles. How do you approach coming up with a new story and how do you make it non-linear? Do you add B and C and D plots into one core storyline or is there a better way? You know, we we really just think about it. You know, a lot of times, you know, a, a particular puzzle, you know, may have, say, three pieces that are needed to it. And we just make sure that, that of the three pieces that are needed for it, that you can really be going and doing each of those three things simultaneously. I, you know, thinking about stuff nonlinear goes, I think, all the way back to the very beginning of the design is, you know, you just you just think about a lot of different things that people can be doing. And we also use those puzzle dependency charts. And you can just look at the chart. And if you look at a puzzle dependency chart and it looks like just a big, long, linear line, you kind of know you have a problem. And when we see those kind of things, we'll just, we'll just kind of pull puzzles apart and, you know, add different steps to them that can happen, you know, along with other pieces. So it's a little bit of an art form. I don't think there's a, a concrete scientific answer to how you do that. If you just, you know, you just kind of feel your way through it. Part of the answer, too, is that if if you open up the game too much at the beginning, then it's overwhelming. As Ron was describing in the demos he was doing at GDC, kind of opening it up section by section and getting bigger and bigger so that, you don't feel like you have the entire universe um, there that you have to solve puzzles and write off. It's not linear, but it's also not everything at one time. Was it like that peeling an onion analogy I think Ron mentioned or something? Yeah, that was more how the world unveils, you know, that the world just gets a little bit bigger and bigger. But uh, yeah, I mean, the way you do that is, you know, is by starting with a couple of, you know, very linear puzzles and then slowly adding in a couple of puzzles that can be done simultaneously. And I do think that's one of the differences between adventure games today and adventure games, you know, back when we were doing stuff, you know, that those games opened up very, very quickly. And I, and I don't think people really minded it very much. 
but I think today, I think you do have to just open things up a little bit slower. It's not, it's not that you want to create a completely linear adventure game, but I think you just want it to become non-linear a little bit slower than those games did back then. I think that works pretty well. Next question is from Helge Fresnet. I recall that Ron said that the EGA version of Monkey Island is the definitive one, but what is the definitive version of Maniac Mansion and Zach McCracken? Um, for me, the definitive version of Maniac Mansion is probably the Commodore 64 version, which really doesn't get seen uh, much today because you know if, if you play the original Maniac Mansion, if you're playing it on Scum VM or you're playing it through the Day of the Tentacle stuff, that's the you know the PC version of the game, which you know which was EGA. But to me, the the real version of Maniac Mansion is the Commodore 64 version. And I, I don't know about you, Zach. What is what, or Zach? <laughs> I called you Zach. <laughs> so we have oh, Zach yeah, McCracken is, on the line. This is Zach here. I'm I'm coming in here for David Fox, and um, you know I I agree. I mean that's the one I worked on really. You know for me the definitive one is the one that I. I actually focus focus all my attention and energy on. Um, we came back and revised it, you know, several times with EGA and then you know, 256 color version VGA. And I didn't even work on the VGA version. Um, I, I was barely associated with it, so I had nothing to do with the art direction. Um, they showed me screens and I'd say cool. And so for me, the one I feel most connected to is the C64 version, even though I think the other ones might look more interesting. Yeah, I'm going to say that in, in terms of Maniac Mansion, the C64 version is definitive for me for a bunch of reasons. One of those being, I think Ron did a lot of the things the first time on the C64. Like, if I recall, the scrolling rooms and character set was like, you know, state of the art on the C64. Is that true? Is that a true recollection, Ron, or not? Yeah, yeah. Sc scrolling those screens, you know, wasn't something that was done a lot before then. So it was pretty amazing. And I remember that Ron wrote Skedit, which was the character crunching thing. And all of those things happened on the C64. So I have all these memories that kind of go back to sort of the core of the C64 being this sort of awesome thing that we did that was, you know, just kind of was pushing all this, you know, story-wise and technology-wise, all of these things simultaneously when it first came out, when we first did it. And that holds a real, you know, kind of nostalgic, visceral memory for me relative to, you know, when I did the the PC version, it was just kind of like putting those screens up and then like, you know, retouching them up in you know the ega palette and stuff like that didn't charlie write skedit i don't think i wrote skedit i think charlie wrote that you didn't write that i thought you wrote that because i no. remember the whole character crunching thing was that that, that charlie was definitely wrote? charlie charlie okay. charlie did the character crunching um you know i may have you know written an editor around that but he was the one that did the character crunching stuff you know what he probably wrote the character crunching routine that but you actually wrote the actual front end i think the the ui of that that i used is kind of how i remember it is that right uh i don't really remember well i think it would have called something different if ron had written it yeah it would have been a disgusting body fluid okay well yeah. did you did you write bile ron Eric Eric wrote Bile, but I think Charlie wrote Skedit. Okay, well, that was a brilliant thing. At the time, it was certainly, I thought it was revolutionary at the time. I'm thinking also in terms of movies, when they come out, you know, they talk about the director's cut. And, you know, really the first versions for these games were the director cuts. They're the ones that, you know, we as the designers created. People might have done tweaks and fixed things and whatever, but, you know, the truth is if I had the 256 color palette to start, it probably would have been... It definitely would have been 256 colors. Um, so that would have been the definitive version. Sort of like this is the definitive version of Thimbleweed Park. 
Yeah, it, re- it really is in some ways. Like, I don't think there'll ever be a director's cut of Thimbleweed Park because this is the director's cut of Thimbleweed Park. You know, I, and, I, and I can't think of any game that I've done, you know, Maniac or, you know, Monkey Island or any of those things where there was a bunch of stuff that I wished we could have put in that we didn't. I think we put in the stuff we wanted to and we cut out the stuff that we thought needed to be cut out. Yeah, I just I don't know I don't know what else I would do to those games. Yeah, like where's the extras DVD? Yeah, I mean I think I I you know I look at a lot of director's cuts movies and I just I think I think they're actually worse than the originals in some ways. I mean I think there have been some cases where the directors didn't get the movie made because of studio meddling and a bunch of other issues, but I think generally the you know the the director's cuts are actually worse movies than the than the originals. I actually think too like you know I'm thinking of George Lucas in the first three Star Wars movies, both episodes four, five, and six, when he went back and tried to enhance them and add stuff to them and change things, I think he ruined them. And, yeah, I don't think he ruined them. I think he well, made them less less good. Isn't that ruining? <laughs> <laughs> made them less good. And, and people ask a lot, like, you know, why don't you do an upgrade at some of the old games that we did? And I don't know. It, in some ways, I mean, they... they in some ways, you you're going back and fiddling with something which probably was fine the way it was. So I don't know if you really need to. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of remastering. I mean, a lot of a lot of people are doing it. And I'm just not a big fan of it. I am a fan of doing what you can do to get those games playable on modern machines. I think we should be doing that stuff. But I think the aesthetics of those games were what they were, and I think it's it's a lot like colorizing black and white movies. You know, black and white movies were shot the way they were. They were lit the way they were. The sets were designed the way they were because they were all shot in black and white. And when you go through and colorize stuff, I think you, you wreck it to some degree. And I, and I do I do worry about that with the remastering of a lot of games. I think if you really want to change the games, then you should just remake them. You know, just, just say, you know, what, we're going to completely remake this game and re-envision this game. You know, I, I think that's a little bit different, but just, just remastering has just never really worked for me. And the next question is from Sushi for David Fox. As Carlo Valente has clearly lost it, I have a truly challenging question for you to follow up on his previous question. Will you succeed in answering this question without using one of your previous answers? Dark chocolate. All right, next question is from Boris. What is your position on aspect ratio? Will the game game be the classic 4x3 or 16x9? Uh, the Thimbleweed Park is definitely a 16x9 um, resolution. I mean, everybody's monitors these days are 16x9. And I think if you go to the 4.3, you end up doing a lot of uh, you know black bars all over the place. So it is definitely 16x9. Um, for the mobile devices, you know, the Android and some of the iOS devices, I mean, we will have to adjust the screen ratio for those devices. But on the PCs, it's, it's all 16x9. By adjusting, you're going to add the black bars someplace i don't know if we're going to add the black bars or whether we'll do something else i mean since we have scrolling screens anyway you know we can do some stuff where what would have been a single screen uh is now just a scrolling room on some of those platforms i haven't really figured out how to address that completely yeah that'd be interesting because i think in some places you know we assume that what i see is what we get for this for what you see on the picture and it could break some things if you see more than or more or less than what you would expect before so it's kind of like when they changed all the movies to tv aspect ratio and what they decided to crop you know sometimes they had to move the camera around and do re- these weird pans to get in the shot what you needed so it could 
be extra work to do that. Next question is from Parallax. It strikes me how tremendously important music was to all the classic point-and-click adventures from LucasArts. What is your plan for music on Thimbleweed Park? Will it fit the retro aesthetic or will you go full orchestra? And have you already decided who you're going to collaborate with in that regard? Uh, we've, you know, we've decided to go, I guess, full orchestral for the music. We're not going to do chip tunes or try to, you know, do the Commodore Sid chip or any of that. I think music is just, it's one of those things that so much emotion is conveyed through music. And, you know, we just want to do a really proper musical soundtrack for the game. So music is one of those things that we're just going completely modern with. Um, and the musician that's going to be doing it, um, he was the person who uh, composed the theme for the Kickstarter, and he's you know been working on the game for several months. Um, his name is Steve Kirk. Um, we'll probably do some music posts uh, now that he's kind of in the thick of stuff, and uh, maybe you can hear from him, or at least we'll uh, put some of the music up on the site to listen to. But having the music really does change the game. I mean, you notice that just in the play tests. You know, we had a single track in the game for a long time, um, and I just got a whole bunch of music from Steve Kirk, and that went in the game, and I had that in the game for the last play test that I did uh, last night. And it really does change the game a lot to have music that can kind of... Uh, uh, convey a lot of emotions in it for the different scenes. Next question is from Marcelo Elman. Has the Xbox presented any, any limitations to the development other than the input method? As the game does not is not very graphics or CPU intensive, I was curious if there is anything else you had to be careful careful of when developing for the Xbox, or if you had no limitations or constraints at all. I think that generally we've had no limitations or constraints. You know, the game that is playing on the PC and the Mac is exactly the same as the game that is playing on the Xbox. And I mean, you can even play the game on the PC with the controllers. So, you know, the game will ship like that. So you can go ahead and do that. The only real issues with the Xbox is, you know, we have the, you know, leaderboards that we have to connect into with the Xbox, and we will need to connect into that, or achievements, not leaderboards. We'll have to connect to that stuff with Steam as well. Um, the Xbox, everything is done through cloud saves. So there's, you know, there's been some technical issues like that that we've had to deal with that make the Xbox a little bit differently. But, I mean, basically the Xbox is a PC. You know, it's basically a Windows machine inside there. So there just hasn't been a lot of issues that we've uh, that we've really had to deal with with that. Next, uh, Stefan asks, is there a way you know of to prove in a mathematical fashion that an adventure game will not have any dead ends? Um, you know, there might be a way to do that. Uh, I certainly don't know that if there is. And the way we do it is we just use the puzzle dependency charts. And, you know, as you go through and you connect the different puzzles together with the charts, it's really easy to just visually see whether something has a dead end just because there's a node that has no connection to it. And it's easy to see if you if there are any like cyclic loops because you just see that some node just loops back on itself. So while there probably is a mathematical way to do it, I think we just kind of do it visually. And it's so, so far it's worked fine. Next question is from uh, Yuli Kusterer. Uh, how expensive is hiring voice actors for a game? So many MMOs are only partially voice acted, and I was wondering if it's a cost question or if it's because it's easier to schedule a game's development and make last-minute fixes to dialogue if you don't have to freeze everything. 
Um, voice acting can be expensive. It can also not be expensive. I think a lot of it just depends on, you know, are you using, you know, professional actors? Are you using, you know, union or non-union actors? Or are you just recording it, you know, with uh, friends? Or, you know, so I think there's a lot of things that can vary the cost. You know, I, I think you can do can do voice acting cheap or you can do voice acting expensive there's definitely a scheduling issue you know when we're making when we were making games like maniac match on a monkey island we could change a line of dialogue you know literally hours before we ship the game off but with voice recording you do have to think about that stuff a little bit ahead of time and with thimbleweed park we're going to do the voice recording at the, just the very very last minute you know maybe a month before we lock everything down we'll just go in and we'll do the voice recording we'll get it all in the game we'll test it we'll probably do a pickup session and then we're done um, for that very reason is that i like to noodle with text and if you record too soon you just can't noodle with your text anymore Next question is from GFFP. I have no idea whether I'm supposed to pronounce that or spell it. Um, I think we'll just spell it. Will it be possible to add voice acting done in other languages by fans? Yeah, the plan is to do that. The plan is to actually allow fan translations of the game. Probably a few months after the game releases, we'll just release all the text you know, as a spreadsheet. And so fans can go through and they can do their own translations for the game. And it's also, they could do that with the voice stuff as well. Um, it's just reading a bunch of files that are you know, numbered um, just the same as the lines are numbered. So if people go in and they record their own voice files for it, um, they could do, you know, a fan, uh, not only translation, but a fan voice acting for the game. So that's the plan is to allow that stuff. It's really pretty simple for us to do. Peter Broderson asks, how involved were you in the design of the physical copy protection in the old games? The codebook in Zack and Maniac and the dial-up pirate wheel in Monkey Island. What would the spiritual equivalent in Thimbleweed Park be if we imagined that game was created in 1987? I think we were all really involved in the copy protection. You know, we knew we needed copy protection and, uh, you know, coming up with the code book and Zach. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, who actually came up with it, but, you know, we, we definitely was a kind of a group discussion and we all came up with it. You know, it wasn't something that was handed down from the marketing department at all. I mean, we worked on those things and we also worked on a lot of different ways to, like, I remember like using red paper instead of like, there was like this special red paper you couldn't copy that we printed it on and stuff like that. Do you remember that, Ron? It was like all this. Uh... Yeah, I think the Commodore 64 versions had that weird red unphotocopyable paper. I think later versions of Maniac had the the red and blue, you know, where you held the little you know piece of cellophane over the top of it. Right. Uh, you know, this sort of brings up another question in my mind, and I don't know if, well, is copy protection, I hear that piracy is a big thing again today because of all the downloadable stuff. Is that like true or not true? And do we care about that? I think piracy is a big deal, but I don't think it's a big problem necessarily. And I think the general consensus is that most of the people that pirate your game wouldn't have bought your game anyway. So, you know, it's not worth spending a lot of time doing a lot of copy protection for stuff. I think the other problem with copy protection is there really is no perfect copy protection. I don't think there's anything that you can really do that will prevent people from doing it. So, you know, I, I don't know that you can really spend a lot of time. I mean, one of the things I really liked about the copy protection, you know, on things like Monkey Island was that it was fun. You know, you had a code wheel and it was fun to figure it out um, as opposed to it all just kind of be kind of doing being done digitally behind the scenes now. Um, as for what the copy protection in Thimbleweed Park would be if this 
game were actually made in 1987, I don't know. Um, I don't know what that would be. I mean, we could come up with something funny like sliding, sliding puzzle faces, kind of like you know the the copy protection wheel in Monkey Island or something. That that was like I thought a really cool thing. The copy wheel in my, Monkey Island was yeah, that was cool. fun. For Thimbleweed Park, I don't know if we have anything that would just lend itself to copy protection really easily. I know we we also tended to open up part of the game and then lock it at some point so that you could so you could have a pirated version and still get like a demo at least part of the game played. Yeah, that's the way Maniac Mansion was with the uh, with that security door at the top of the stairs. Yeah, we did that with Zach for international flights. I, I don't know. I haven't really thought about what it would be. Maybe something with the detectives, you know, maybe some detective decoder ring or something. I don't know. The FBI decoder ring that real FBI agents have to use <laughs> yeah, to like, read their secret messages. <laughs> All right, last question is from Big Red Button. I assume that bugs can be very incalculable. Has there possibly been a bug in the game that caused you beads of perspiration against the background of a schedule? I don't know that there have been any bugs in Thimbleweed Park that have just been those kind of nerve-wracking bugs where you just have no idea what they are and they just kind of pop up at weird moments it feels like all of our bugs you know when the bug happens you know we figure out what it is and then it's you know it's solved relatively quickly and then we move on i mean can you think of anything david that's been a super frustrating bug in the game not not really frustrating i mean there's like the walk box stuff where we think we have it nailed and then we change it and then we find some edge cases in certain rooms where where the character walks really does really weird stuff and that gets fixed and it might open up another one so there there's somewhere there's there's sometimes you get like this whack-a-mole kind of a thing with bug where you fix one thing and it opens up another one so there's a frustrating thing if if anything's frustrating it's like when you think you've nailed it and find out that it made something work differently elsewhere do you guys find that the technology today, like one of the things that, you know, we've talked about before is how fast you can compile something today. I remember you guys would compile the game. You'd like go away, you know, to lunch and come back in three hours and the game would be compiled. Now you do it in like with the push of a button in like 30 seconds. Does that change the dynamic of, you know, bugs that are hard to like, you know, track down and stuff like that? Just that the tools are so much faster, the technology is so much faster. Well, I know when we're debugging the engine code, you know, which is all C and C++, that is a lot easier today than it was back at Lucasfilm um, because we have these really nice, you know, IDE visual debuggers and we can set, you know, wonderful breakpoints and just, you know, examine variables and change variables on the fly. You know, we're back then, we just didn't have a lot of that stuff. You know, the, the original version of the SCUM system on the Commodore 64, I mean, our biggest debugging technique was being able to flash the border color, you know, that we'd change the border color depending on where we were in the program to try to decide where it crashed. And it's a little better on the PC, but not much. You know, it was a lot of printf debugging that you'd put in the game. But now, you know, everything's all these really nice visual debuggers. And so that stuff is is a lot easier to track down. I think the way that I would do it back then, too, I spent a lot more time double checking and triple checking the code before I compiled it. And now I just, you know, do a fix and check it. And if it works great, if it doesn't, I do it again because it's it's faster to do that. It's faster sometimes to see whether it worked. 
Yeah, that's that's really true as well. I mean, the fact that you can compile the game in less than a second and get it running, it's like I, I do tend to just make fixes and run it and see whether it worked. And also, you know, things like Xcode and Visual Studio, they're actually compiling your code as you're typing it. You know, so you're kind of you're you're typing this stuff, and it's just instantly telling you whether you have syntax errors and whether stuff's going to be compiled or whether some variable isn't defined. So it's almost like you don't even need to compile it to see whether it even compiles. It's just compiling as you write it. So yeah, a lot of stuff has changed in the tools uh, with being able to debug stuff. I think things are a lot easier today than they were back then. Okay, I think we are out of questions. So thank you everybody for all your wonderful questions and uh, we will do this again next month. Uh, anything to add, Gary or David? Dark chocolate. <laughs> no, I think that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun putting on the animation. So hopefully next time everyone sees a demo, it'll be more animated. Yeah, animations are so weird. You know, it's like we, we kind of use a lot of these generic animations for a long time. And then when these special case animations go in, it's just, it is so amazing how much better everything looks. Octavie's done some really nice animations that happen in the beginning of the game. And I'm just, I'm stunned when I see that stuff actually working in the game. Okay, well, I will talk to you guys later. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. All right, so I can get a sound check. Sure, testing, testing. Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. <laughs> okay, now this is me talking normally. Dark chocolate one, dark chocolate two. Let's just all say dark chocolate. Dark chocolate. So this is Ron Gilbert, dark chocolate, and I have David Fox, dark chocolate, and Gary Winnick, dark chocolate.